No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I'm going to taxi you back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us took just 47 minutes into Cristiano Ronaldo's Old Trafford return for him to find a score sheet in a prime example of what the 36-year-old would add to the Premier League, being slightly more alert to a situation than helpless, inferior defenders. Sorry it had to be you, Isaac Hayden and Jamal Lascelles. We know exactly how it feels. Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Back podcast. With me, as always, is Phil and Enda. How are you, lads? How's it going? How's it going? So we're fresh from a, a, what felt like an eternity of a, an international break, but I think we'll leave um, the Stephen Kenny and Irish uh, senior team uh, analysis uh, to bed for for a couple of weeks just to give our, our brains a chance to uh, recover from uh, what felt yeah. like um, a, a tough few weeks um, and emotionally yeah. fraught couple of weeks for various reasons um, and back into the Premier League this weekend. And uh, in the... On, United front, obviously Cristiano Ronaldo returning was the huge news and um, in the build-up I was kind of reminded of um, Tony O'Donoghue's question to Ronaldo after the Portugal game which was rudely cut off um, yeah. by Ronaldo at the time <laughs> in relation to uh, us all feeling like extras in a, in a Cristiano Ronaldo film, uh, a biopic and it felt very much the same here against Newcastle. I mean it it felt ine- inevitable that he would be involved in a goal and somehow uh, and he ups- ended up scoring twice. Um, two very different goals. The first of which, I mean, very, very impressive. And this kind of new Ronaldo, if you want to call him that, that uh, Fox in the box, number nine. I mean, if you see it from one angle, he's basically made his move the second the ball has left Mason Greenwood's foot, um, anticipating a mistake from the keeper. Um, and I mean, his alertness, and we, we obviously cut the wrong end of it or Seamus Coleman did certainly in, in, in the international games but um, what did you make of, of Ronaldo's second coming at, at Old Trafford and the four on win there? Yeah it was very interesting I mean you think the fact that it was Sancho and Varane's first start at Old Trafford um, and you think that would be the headline on any other day but it's it is Ronaldo's world and the rest of us are just living in it whether we you know agree with it or not um, but overall First, I really liked the formation, which is almost a four-one-four-one. Really, when United are on the ball, which is the type of thing I was hoping Solskjaer would do this season against you know seventy to eighty percent of the opposition, especially at Old Trafford, when you consider that you know United only won nine home games last season. Um, you know the Sheffield United match in particular really really stung at a time when United were actually top of the league. Um, so performances like that are something that they really need to cut out this season and. The best way to do that, I think, is starting your be- your strongest front five, front six, which is you know basically your best three attackers, Pogba, Fernandez, and then 
probably one of Matic, Fred or McTominay, but I think Matic did quite well on the day. And it's just a shame that he's not five or six years younger, really. But, you know, as you said, Ronaldo's movement was excellent. If you actually look at his average position, it was just outside the box, which is quite surprising to me, considering, you know, he has become this new poacher who, you know, doesn't drop deep, doesn't really run at defenders anymore, um, just waits for his chances. But, I mean, his movement is still absolutely exceptional. You know, there was a great camera clip that followed him for about 30 seconds before his second goal against Ireland, where he just, you know, dragged Coleman in, out, in, out, and then finally lost him for the header. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that poacher that we've really been missing, I mean, Cavani delivered it last season at points, but didn't really have the fitness to play sort of twice a week when required. Um, apparently, you know, he he he's one of those players that if he's not, you know, 99.9% fit, he doesn't even we want to be part of a match day squad, which is the reason why he's out for another week. So, you know, he's not somebody we can rely on to play 40, 45 games a season. Um, whereas I think we probably have that now with Ronaldo. Um, and it, it's what made it so interesting to me is a lot of people have said, well, he's not the Ronaldo that, you know, United signed 15 years ago or whenever it was, but nobody's expecting him to be, you know, he, he's evolved his game immensely since then um, and has become an outright number nine which is why it's kind of interesting why so many people try and claim he maybe held Juventus back. But if you do have a number nine who who just stands in the box and scores a lot of goals, I don't think that can hinder too many sides. And it's cer- certainly something United have been searching for since probably Van Persie in 2013. Um, so quite impressive for the first goal, as you said, in terms of his movement. His touch for the second goal was exceptional to really leave Hayden for dead. And then his pace that he still has over five yards. Um, and then getting the finish on target. The keeper had a bit of a nightmare for both goals, if we're being honest. But overall, United, I felt they started quite nervously, um, but grew into the game. Um, and the good thing, I suppose, as a United fan, is that's twice we've conceded early in the second half at home and then just blown the opposition away with the attacking power that we have. And it's hopefully a team we see going forward, not so much the concession of the goal, but responding quickly and, and, and not getting too down on ourselves, which is something that's probably happened a lot in the past three to four seasons, especially at home. I think the players have felt the pressure of, you know, having to be on the front foot, playing against that low block, whereas there's just so much pace and power in that, you know, front three, front four. And then if you sit too deep, then Fernandez can do what he did for that third goal. Um, And I thought the fourth goal was absolutely phenomenal between Pogba, Van de Beek, Martial and and Lingard, who, you know, could be a really strong option for United this Mm -hmm. season. I was really surprised he wasn't sold to West Ham, but... You know, he is somebody who I'd be surprised if he didn't deliver an additional eight to ten goals to that forward line. So, all in all, like a lot to be positive of. Uh, midfield is obviously still a concern, uh, especially against the stronger teams. But, um, you know, top joint top of the league, and you know, a, a nice Champions League group to come, hopefully. So, a, a lot to be positive about. Phil, I was just watching um, the Monday Night Football build-up before we came on and Gary Neville did a, a pretty good analysis of, of Ronaldo's sort of 10-year career span where as the years have gone on now up until, I mean, his spell at Juventus pretty much, all major statistics have gone down such as dribbles, uh, touches, you know, taking on players. Um, but the key statistics that have gone up um, are shots within the box and, and shot conversion. So, as years have gone on, he's completely changed his game and you kind of have to admire that, don't you? Oh, completely. And like, you look at the player he was, certainly when he when he was emerging at United as, as a teenager, uh, after he joined from Sporting, and the player, even that he was 
turning into when he left for Madrid was still that kind of inverted winger wide forward cutting in type thing. It definitely wasn't this kind of fox in the box. I mean, he's nearly more of like he nearly resembles Lewandowski more than he resembled the old Ronaldo at this stage. And it's it's an incredible ability to not lose the volume that he had in terms of goals. Like you said, it's actually going the other way in terms of shots and conversion. Um, but it, it's an incredible ability to completely change and remodel yourself based on what your physical capabilities are now to still retain uh was it neil lennon was saying on premier sports and, and he's right um ronaldo still has bags of pace it's just that he doesn't have it to do 15 dashes a game he might have it to do two uh but he still retains it as well so he he still has an incredible amount of those physical gifts that he had and um, but he also has this incredible football brain on his shoulders and um, like you said like he anticipated that's built shot five yards quicker than anyone else on, mm. on the pitch did. Uh, and I think that is what we're going to see from Ronaldo uh, in this iteration at United. As Enda said, that kind of fox in the box. Um, maybe maybe if just slightly few less step overs. I mean, he still threw in a few, but maybe slightly less of the tricks and flicks and the knuckleball free kicks, though he's going to definitely try them. But it'll be that kind of between the width of the goal uh, and, and the edge of the penalty yeah. box. I think is where you're going to see him do an awful lot. One, one thing, sorry, that has increased during his career, uh, as judged by the thing going around on Twitter today, is his increased ability to stop teammates eating desserts. I don't know if anyone saw Lee Grant come <laughs> out and said United players it's, all sat back when they saw Ronaldo yeah. wasn't going for the preferred roles. They were like, okay, I'll skip as well. Yeah, it's, it's quite funny. Solskjaer said, oh, Lee Grant was just joking around. That's not true. It's not as if we were eating junk food before, but actually a leaked menu of what United players were ordering two or three weeks ago. They were all having dessert, so um, <laughs> I don't think I do think there is a bit of uh, you know. There's a famous story when Patrice Evra first visited Ronaldo's house. He was basically given lettuce and a plain uh, breadless chicken with no seasoning or sauce or anything. Um, and he just thought, obviously, as a French guy who has much different, <laughs> m- much much different uh, taste buds, thought this was insane. But um, you know, it's. It, it's been well documented how how fussy he is about his food. So yeah, I imagine it does put a bit of pressure on the others when they see him, you know, probably topless at the dinner table, not having a dessert. You know, <laughs> I can't imagine it went down well with the with the English boys either. I imagine uh, Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw are fond of uh, a bit of pudding after dinner. Yeah, well, Luke Shaw, I'm sure, has a couple of extra dairy milks in his bag. So yeah, I imagine it's a bit awkward. And uh, without going um, full Jonathan Liu on on the United criticisms, but um, any any concerns over Jaden Sancho's start in his first couple of games? No, not at all. Um, uh, I think we'll see him play mostly on the left, like he did on Saturday. Certainly, while Rashford is out injured, um, and you know he had some really good touches, <clears throat> not quite on on a par with Luke Shaw yet in terms of you know where he should be and where he shouldn't be, but. Uh, you know, this has been one of the the best young talents in European football for the last three seasons. Who's just settling into a new team, settling back into the Premier League, and uh, I've never been less concerned uh, over uh, what a player will bring to United. Um, you know, even if it takes a full season for for us to fully see it. Um, but I think as the season goes on, he he will improve for sure. It's just a case of you know him settling into that front three, front four. Um, and and the issue, I suppose, as I said, I think a few weeks ago when we signed him, is he was a player at Dortmund who um, was allowed to chase the ball, so he would go from left to, to number ten to num- to right, uh, and his job was just to, to link up with Haaland whenever he could. 
Whereas at United, obviously, they have Greenwood, Ronaldo, Fernandez, Pogba all demanding the ball all the time. So you will drift in and out of the game a little more. But once he starts to link up with them uh, a bit more and understand how they play, I, I think he'll be fine. But absolutely no concerns at all over Sancho. And, uh, you know, I thought his movement on Saturday was very, very good. I just think United just aren't in tune with that yet. Um, you know, they're more used to, you know, feeding the ball to Pogba and Fernandez, who who are used to looking for Greenwood and the number nine. Um, so I think it'll come over time. So no concerns at all, no. Phil, Liverpool, a nice 3 0 win against Leeds. Um, another big loss for Leeds, actually, uh, against a tough opposition. But on the Liverpool front, I mean, a couple of positives before we get into the glaring uh, negative coming out of that one. But Another great game for Thiago, I thought. Um, what involved seems to finally be getting to grips with the Premier League slowly but surely um, a year into his arrival. Um, Matip, I thought, was, was very impressive in terms of carrying the ball and, and looks to have come on leaps and bounds now uh, and gaining a little bit of confidence again next to Van Dijk. But I think the big one, obviously, is, uh, is Mo Salah. 100 goals, the fifth fastest player to 100 Premier League goals um, in 162 games. Um, Fallen Shear, Kane, Aguero, and Henri. Pretty uh, prestigious list of names there for a for a right winger. I mean, um, it still feels like he's a little bit underrated. I I, I don't know if this is kind of Liverpool biasness or anything, but it still feels like he's just kind of flicking away under the radar all these years. Um, and consistency delivers week in week out. Um, I mean, hundred goals in one hundred sixty two games. I think his xG over those hundred games is like ninety five percent or something. Um, just an absolutely ridiculous run. Oh, that, like frankly ridiculous when you think back to when they signed him from Roma, and obviously it's been well played up now that it, that he was kind of one of the last great kind of metric signings from Edwards in terms of like after that it was like Van Dijk and Allison and very obviously excellent players. Salah was signed as somebody who I think the numbers guys saw a real potential jump, but. For the layman looking on, it just looked looked like Liverpool were getting a fast winger who could chip in with a good, with a nice few goals. And obviously, his first year was that that ridiculous year when he just couldn't stop scoring. And I think because he went and scored thirty two goals, whatever it was that year, and since then he's kind of scored low twenties, uh, which he's still been in the golden boot conversation every year. Basically, I think there has been this developed sense that he kind of is flying under the radar a small bit. I don't think it's to the same extent. You see some, like any fan base, there's some perennially angry Liverpool fans online who, anytime Salah does Anton goes, how about that for a one-season wonder? I haven't seen many people call him one-season wonder for a long time. I mean, maybe when he didn't hit the ground running in season two, some people might have said it. But um, I, I, I do think he's probably, like you, you read out those names, th- those four people that were quicker than to 100 goals. Might have been a little quicker as well if he didn't fuck around at Chelsea for a little while. I mean, if he if he just come in um, and his Liverpool career, he might have even improved that ratio a small bit. Um, but <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> I mean, he scored two goals for Chelsea in whatever, however many league games, fifteen, I think maybe was it. So he might have improved his ratio a little bit. But um, like when you see the kind of company he's keeping, he definitely is deserving. I think of a lot of respect. I do think he gets respect, but there's still, I think there's still that idea that he's kind of a bit of a waster in terms of he needs a few chances to warm up or that like he's not as clinical as as you might think and then like like you said I mean one thing that stuck out to me looking at his stats over the last couple of days since he scored that goal was what you said how close his xg matches his actual goal output every year other than his first year when he I think his I think he outshot his xg by like eight goals 
And um, but he's like in the years since when he's kind of been around 20, 21, 22 goals, he's been remarkably close on XG. So he's actually finishing these chances that or he's finishing the right amount of chances basically. So he's not actually that wasteful. Uh, he's just a really good goal scorer. And certainly Liverpool are really lucky to have him. Um, it, it looks like he, he he should probably leave Liverpool as Liverpool's top ever Premier League goal scorer. I think he's see eighteen or twenty behind Fowler now. Um, so he he, sh- he should get there. You'd imagine unless he goes this summer, then maybe it's a bit of a stretch. But he should get there, uh, and that in itself should be enough for Mark of, of what sort of a player he is and has been for Liverpool. Yeah, I suppose the detractors might point out at you know a few performances at Old Trafford where he's potentially struggled but I mean that aside I just can't think of any reason why you'd knock the guy really I think he's what he's done has just been a phenomenal turnaround in a career and I don't know how I ended up watching some random match for Fiorentina against Juventus years ago when he was on loan there and he picked up the ball inside his own half I think it was a Coppa Italia game and he left three or four Juventus defenders for dead and finished into the top corner and I just went holy shit, this is not the guy that was just playing for Chelsea. And and I think it's it's one of those kind of, you know, a sliding doors moment in, in a footballer's career when really Serie A saw what he could do. That led to the Roma move, where I think he scored 18 or 19 goals that season for Roma, which, you know, was a great return and, you know, had a really great relationship with the likes of Mangalon and Zeko and those type of players. But, um, you know the move to Liverpool has exceeded all expectations and it's credit to him. It felt like he changed the whole mentality of Liverpool um, in terms of what Klopp was trying to build. Obviously Mane was, was a great outlet for them in his first season, but he needed something extra Klopp to really um, launch at teams. And, and Salah was just a great foil for everything they were trying to do. Those quick counter-attacking moves. And, you know, there's that famous video um in that Arsenal game at Anfield where Salah and I think four others are just running at Arsenal on the counter-attack um, and they scored and I think beat them 4-5-1 or five, one or whatever it was and it just felt like this was an entirely different team to what we've seen Liverpool produce in the last kind of couple of decades in the Premier League uh, and I think Salah has been a huge part of that and uh, yeah, I think he still is a bit underrated maybe, maybe uh, I don't know why maybe technically people feel he's not as impressive as some of the top players or he's not a, you know, a number nine who bashes through people, but you know, and there has been talks of attitudes with other players and stuff like that, but he's, he's everything you would want from a footballer um, who delivers just constantly time after time. And um, I just think he's just exceptional to watch week in, week out. And he was excellent again yesterday. I mean, he just tore leads apart. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think he's probably been the main signing for Klopp. Uh, in terms of value for money as well. I mean, he's been the great find for Liverpool um, and it's changed the entire course of the club, really. Yeah, and I think that goal against Leeds yesterday probably was selling in the nutshell um, when Matty made that run through, didn't pass through him, threw a little bit of a strop, um, but he's second, he realised that the chance was still on. It was just like a, a switch had flicked and, you know, he's back into... Back into the zone, I was there to, to finish off the move. Um, in the obviously, we've been lavish in our praise for Harvey Elliott over the past couple of weeks. Um, fantastic start of the season for Liverpool, um, and absolutely gut wrenching to see him uh, go down with a, a pretty gruesome injury. Um, that probably rules him out for the bulk of the season. Um, 
I mean, we spoke about it briefly in 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 our chat today. The, the Canary article on on the uh, Irish Times in regards to the to the challenge that it was kind of egged on by this new kind of let it flow um, thing the Premier League are living under that referees are are letting things flow a little bit more and and there's bigger challenges and a little bit more um, physical uh, play involved. And obviously, it came up with uh, with that Burnley game and and Klopp was uh, very vocal afterwards that you know. Burnley were extremely physical um, and probably got away with a little bit more than they should have. But I mean, it was a bad challenge, but like you see those types of challenges every game, I think where a player tries to lunge ahead and and claw the ball back. And I just thought Stroke was very unfortunate the way it kind of landed on top of Harvey Elliott. I mean, I don't think there was much malice uh, and I certainly don't think you could pinpoint this challenge or this injury to um, to this this let it flow um, moniker that the Premier League are kind of rolling with. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, the only argument I'd have if somebody had issues with the let it flow game is, you know, if tensions boil up as the match goes on, there's bad challenges, um, there's no bookings, plays letting been going on, and, and it builds and builds and builds in a match, which we have seen at times in the past. But... Yesterday in particular wasn't that type of match at all. And I know Klopp had issues with the Burnley game, but, you know, Burnley are always physical, whether it's home or away. That's just, you know, <laughs> you know, there's a Mike Bassett four four two element to Sean Dyche. So you'll always have a tough game against Burnley. Um, and United travelling to there last year at Turf Moor had a horrible time of it, really, to be honest. So um, that's kind of their forte. Yesterday, you know, as I said in the chat earlier, it didn't really feel like that type of game that was, you know, bubbling under where a bad challenge was about to come. It was actually quite flat in terms of the aggressiveness. You know, Leeds played fast, Liverpool played fast, but there was no nothing really um, happening in terms of dangerous tackles. And if, if you look back again, I mean, you know, Elliot, he moves the ball to his left. So it is there for that type of challenge just to just to dive in slightly to kind of win the ball away. And 99 times out of 100, you don't follow through like that on the ankle. So I, I, I just think it was extremely unfortunate. Obviously, once a guy is injured, I can understand the tendency to give the red card and, and Sky tried to kind of cover yeah. themselves saying, well, the referee was going to give the red card via or confirm that anyways. But I just think that was utter rubbish, to be honest. Um, the way the referee reacted, he didn't even blow up until Salah kind of just had to look away. Uh, so I just think it was a, a really unfortunate kind of freak incident where the follow-through, which could happen at any time in any challenge, you know, um, you know, came through Elliot's ankle, which was placed at, at the time on the ground, which which is always unfortunate, but there was nothing dangerous about it. I mean, we see so many challenges where the studs are up or, you know, we've talked a lot about Pogba's technique where he tries to protect the ball by basically shinning somebody. There was nothing like that. I felt when, when looking at the challenge back and I just think it was extremely unfortunate that his leg, which was bent, was sliding through on an ankle that was placed on the ground and, and you know, the laws of physics, unfortunately, went against Elliot at that point, but it didn't seem malicious to me at the time and, and having watched it back, I know a lot of Liverpool people online are, you know, furious at the challenge, which obviously is fair enough when somebody suffers a break, but to me, there was nothing too vicious about it and I don't think it had anything to do at all with this you know new start to the season where referees are trying to let the game flow a bit more which I think overall was needed but it's just unfortunate that Elliot has suffered this injury On Chelsea then lads um, I mean very much 
um, a Premier League title contender going into the season. Um, I think Romelu Lukaku's addition probably cemented that um, and put them very much on a par with uh, which Man City. Um, I mean, looking at his stats against Villa, two goals, two shots, um, two chances. I mean, very, very clinical, which is something we've come to expect from Lukaku, I think, over the past couple of years. Something that Chelsea lacked in particular last year um, with Timo Werner, obviously, uh, much maligned for a lot of the season, despite his his hard work, was his the number of chances he missed. And I think I saw a stat that Chelsea dropped twenty one points to uh, teams at the bottom half of the table. Whereas, you know, Lukaku has kind of been uh, categorised as a flat track bully. But I mean, there's no harm in a flat track bully when you're uh, when you're drawing or dropping points to uh, teams at the lower end of the table. It certainly comes in handy to have a player of his caliber. Um, and he scored two fantastic goals against Villa. In fairness. Um, anything to take away there I mean it, w- it was a weird game I think Villa were probably um, a little bit disappointed not to get something in, in a way which seemed weird but I mean um, Lukaku aside they were probably even enough um, I know uh, Saul was much maligned as well hauled off at half time um, for his debut um, for Jorginho at half time um, but other than that I think you know as long as Lukaku is banging in the goals, I think Chelsea will be there or thereabouts. Yeah, I think I think you're bang on. I think the value that Lukaku will bring, as you said, even if he doesn't score in any big game this year, if he is a flat track bully, the way this league is shaping up with four contenders, uh, you're gonna kind of have to get rid and get get over teams like Villa without a whole heap of trouble if you are going to be able to. To, to contend before with the other three teams, uh, which is what it looks like it's shaping up to at, at this kind of early stage, you can only really afford to to drop points against your direct rivals, and even then, you're kind of looking to draw games as opposed to lose them. But you can't be dropping needless points uh, to to teams in that kind of next rung or two below. So I think Lukaku is going to be invaluable there. Um, I think you're right when you were saying that Villa maybe slightly overinflated themselves to say they were unlucky not to get something, but they had chances and Chelsea looked a little bit more vulnerable than maybe we've been used to seeing them. When like when you when you first said that stat about the amount of points they dropped the lower half uh, teams last season, the first thing that came to mind was how susceptible Frank Lampard's team were in the defensive sense to kind of mindless ricks and and, and things just happening like a series of, of, of almost comedic errors uh, game on game. And obviously Tuchel coached that out of them pretty quickly. Um, and you get a sense that that's not going to happen to them this year. But now with the pointy end sorted out as well, um, it does feel like they're going to be right in the mix right to the end. And I suppose when you take this season and last season into account, you look at the transformation in the squad in terms of a couple of really big signings and also a really top-class coach it probably is where they should be getting to. Um, like there's, There should probably be an air of expectation around this Chelsea side to go and achieve something. And they won the, the Champions League last year. I think the league should absolutely be a target for them this year. I, I don't see at this stage why there's a reason for them to, to not think that. They have all the elements, I think, that they're going to need. They have depth. They've uh, a solid defence. They've now got a really, really good striker and they've got a really good manager who's going to coach them in such a way that makes them quite suitable for league football i think in terms of being quite tight with an ability to blow teams away and um, so yeah from what i've seen so far i've been really impressed with them and um I, I i don't think they're going to be going away any soon i kind of forgot what it's like to have a really coherent together 
scary Chelsea. It's been a little while since that's happened. They've been a bit of a mess for a while, a little bit of a basket case. Always capable of pulling stuff together, obviously, when Conte came in. But that fell apart really quickly. This second Jose coming came together and fell apart. You know, they haven't been able to kind of keep things together really since Jose's first time. Uh, this feels a little ominous, as far as I'm concerned, if they're getting their house back in order uh, with, with a potentially good manager and good squad. That feels a little ominous. Yeah, they're scaring the bejesus out of me. Anyways, I don't know what you think, but um, just <laughs> <laughs> everything just feels a bit right about Chelsea. I mean, Tuchel has this excellent balance of being tactically aware, managing the game, you know, being rough on players while mm. somehow being a nice guy in interviews as well. You know, like it's like 2004 yes. Mourinho almost, you know. He's very likable. I find his his interviews are, are are nearly too honest. They're kind of like yeah, you know, exactly very impressive so far. A lot of a lot of managers would just kept so long and say, right, it's his debut. You know, it's Aston Villa. We're winning anyways. You know, we're you know hooked him. You know, it wasn't working. Don't care. He's new signing. Tough shit. Whereas, you know, Lampard just was a bit of a mess, really. Even even since that Valencia game in the Champions League, where he was trying to make out that Barkley was always their penalty taker, he was just a bit too weak for what Chelsea needed and for what a top club needed, really. Um, whereas Tuchel just has the balance perfectly. And, and I think what's scary about Chelsea is what we saw at Anfield, they can go to that back five and they can shut a game down. But with the options that they have up front, they could easily change to a front four, front five and blow a team away when they really need to, when they're chasing the game. Um, and to have so many options, I know they missed out on Kunde at the back, but it doesn't look like that it's really hurt them this season so far anyways. So, you know, the way they're just kind of trucking along very comfortably, very matter of fact in, in the way they play. And I think Lukaku really epitomizes that, as you said, Kevin, with his two goals, especially the second one, which was really well taken. And there's just something very authoritarian about them. And quite frightening, really, in terms of how they're getting the job done. And, and I think they have a lot of improvement to go as well. You know, I think players like Ziyech haven't really contributed yet. Pulisic is still finding his way into the team. You know, Mount has been very, very good for the past two seasons, but you still feel he has another level to go as well. Um, so, so there's a lot more to come from Chelsea, which is probably the most frightening thing of all. For sure. And a lot more to come possibly from Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. Um, I mean, a team we kind of highlighted in our in our season previews and, and the first couple of weeks of the season as a team that, you know, have a couple of nice players um, but may struggle, maybe a, a relegation contender. But, I mean, a huge 3-0 win over Tottenham, um, albeit Spurs were down to, to 10 men for a portion of the game. But, um, I mean, looking at some of the stats from, from Vieira, um, I was kind of, you know, having a laugh that it's very similar to what Stephen Kenny is trying to do with Ireland in terms of kind of quietly changing, um, you know, a little bit of negative football culture. Um, I mean, I think the the game on, on Saturday, uh, it was their highest possession figure for, for a couple of years in the Premier League. Um, they're high on shots, their highest percentage share against a big six team um, in five or six seasons. So all things are pointing in the right direction for, for Palace. Um, obviously, the addition of Edson Udvar um, coming d- coming off pretty quickly there with his with his first touch, and then a, a second a couple of minutes later. But um, I mean Zaha on the score sheet was was nice to see. But they arguably have a player of the season contender 
or albeit or, or certainly a, a young player this season contender as a fair and Connor Gallagher. I mean, he's been absolutely outstanding in the centre of Park, um, box to box. I think he's like top fifteen in terms of shots taken. I mean, he he's a do it all, and he's been extremely impressive and a hell of an addition to to this Palace team. That I mean, when you look at their midfield options over the years, it's been very, you know, very laborious. You know, a couple of guys that you know not hugely. Um, athletic or anything but this guy has it, it seems to have it all and I mean if he can kind of continue to deliver that uh, with the likes of Zaha and, and, and Edouard in front of him now and the likes of Olisa to come back in and, and um, easy obviously um, it should, could be a, a pretty pretty entertaining season for Palace I mean you know we, we did kind of harp on about uh, Vieira's uh, credentials but uh, I mean he could easily turn it around and they could be a, a nice little team to watch there I, I'm really interested by by how Palace are going to go this year because obviously, like you said, Kev, they're going from like outside of Burnley, the most kind of traditional football man that you could have had in Roy Hodgson. They'd 15 players out of contract at the end of the season. Some of them moved on, some of them were retained or, or whatever. But they are going from having a really old, quite like a, a squad that had been together for a while, definitely kind of an air of staleness about them. And we're definitely just going about surviving in the Premier League as if the, the TV money between like 15th and 17th was the most important thing to them. And they, there was kind of there was nothing about the club other than being a Premier League club, if that makes sense. They were, I don't know how close they came, minutes, days away from signing Lucien Favre as their manager. He changed his mind, which is pretty funny <laughs> that he agreed. And then maybe he looked into it and said, fucking not a chance, I'm out of here. So they were actually thinking, I think, in the right way you see that with some of the signings they've made, they're, they've had a bit of a sea change. Um, it's just that they've had to do maybe three or four years of transition in one shortened summer. And they've ended up with a manager that um, I know uh, none of us are probably sure about. And is probably most skeptical of all of us, probably haven't been exposed to him a little bit more than the rest of us. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, it's quite interesting because it's nearly like a football manager <laughs> simulation or something. It's like, all your squads out of contract. What are you going to do? Sign loads of young, exciting players. Get a few loans in. Get a, a, a former big name player who's stumbled at management and see how you get on. And um, like it, 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 the players they have looked to me on paper like it really could work out. You mentioned Conor Gallagher, Kevin. You're right. Another one of these kind of players that are being churned out by Chelsea's ridiculous. Um, youth system that like is now responsible for it feels like about forty percent of all players in the Premier League. And they can just turn up in, in, I don't know, obviously we know about Gallagher for a longer time, but it feels like these players can just turn up in lower half Premier League teams and be ready to improve them at, at, a, at a drop of a hat. Um, and, and you see the stuff they're doing on the pitch and you think actually this could be quite interesting. And it may be just a fan of the dugout you're not that sure about. Um, and he, he obviously wasn't their first choice. I, I'm intrigued to see how it goes. I'd like to see them do well because I like the change like how dramatic a change they're after making it would have been relatively easy instead of going for somebody progressive and whether Vieira is that or not instead of going for a progressive model they could have leaned into a fucking mm. Allardyce or somebody boring and said listen we're going perfectly happy rolling on with a Roy Hodgson who's 10 years younger and see how we go and I, I like to see teams doing something a little bit different and taking a bit of a gamble and um, I think they're going to be one they, they won't be boring this year I'll put it that way they won't be Roy Hodgson boring they'll for be sure. exciting and uh, on the other side of the ball, then um, Nuno very much 
back to the norm for Spurs after their run of one nil wins. Um, I mean, the statistics were absolutely shocking. Uh, as anything, or as bad as anything under Jose Marino. I mean, two shots. Um, I think their XG was like zero point zero eight percent or something like that. Um, the first time Harry Kane failed to to have a shot in in a full Premier League game. Obviously, they were out without Son um, and the South American players, but I mean. Tragically bad performance from Spurs, and, and and immediately you're kind of starting to worry there that um you know despite the the start of the season that they had that it could very easily unravel if uh, if this kind of side of play continues under Nuno, um and I thought as well, you know whereas Conor Gallagher was extremely impressive. I mean there's there's something really lacking in in that Spurs midfield with uh, with Oliver Skip Winks and. And Heiberg, I mean, plenty of running, but maybe lacking that little bit of quality in, in, in the final third. Yeah, I feel like this has been building up for Spurs really since the start of the season. Kind of stumbled over the line in the first couple of games against City and Wolves. Obviously had a bit of a shock defeat in the Europa Conference League away in Portugal, but were able to fix that. And then, you know, again, stumbled across the line against Watford at home. So uh, that midfield that he named on, on Saturday... Um, just looked absolutely tragic, really. I mean, <laughs> Skip, Winks and Hoiberg, I mean, there's absolutely no creativity there. So it's all on Deli Alley, really, behind Lucas and Kane. And I suppose the problem for Nuno, really, is when you do basically lock Undumbele in the shed and you need a creative midfield option, there really isn't anybody else to look around. Um, and I was surprised maybe he didn't go for, you know, a 4-3-3 with Gill and, and then Ali in front of Hoiberg with either one or skip or wings. So to really start all three of them together was kind of asking for trouble. And Wolves fans would have watched that match thinking, we've seen this a lot where the game is tight. You can see the penalty. It all kind of falls apart. The centre-back loses his head, gets sent off. The XG is whatever, 0.1 of <laughs> whatever. Uh, it was just a complete disaster from Spurs from start to finish. And and probably the type of performance that Spurs fans would have been worried about since Nuno got the job. Because there's very little progressive about him. He's he's quite static as a manager. Tries to just set up a team to do a job. Um, and I think Spurs are better than that. You know, Ali started the season really well, but... Again, he needs to be in that deeper role behind three quick front players. And I just don't know why you'd take that away from him when it was, you know, sort of working at the start of the season. So I was I was really surprised with how they set up. Again, Dyer going off early was a little bit unfortunate, but you know, why not throw Romero in there when you've you know you're gonna spend a lot of money on him, obviously when that loan becomes a permanent deal. Uh, and it's the type of match against Benteke that we saw at Atlanta, he he would have really fancied. Um, so again, it's all a bit too safe um, from Nuno, which is kind of his forte, really. Uh, Emerson didn't have a great debut either, which obviously didn't help. Um, and obviously Matt Doherty is locked in the shed now, which is unfortunate as well from an Irish <laughs> perspective. And I don't know when he'll ever play again, to be honest. But um, yeah, it was it was just all very safe, static and really, really dull from Spurs. And I think it just played into Palace's hands at home with a full crowd. Mm. Um, and obviously Gallagher was was exceptional as well, just just like he was two weeks earlier, which really helped Palace in particular. So, you know, two completely different approaches to the game and it, and it really hurt Spurs. Quickly, lads, on Leicester City. Leicester City getting the, the 1-0 win there. I mean, they've been 
pretty imperious since that day one lost the Spurs. Um, 25 shots in this one. Dominated pretty much from start to finish um, despite getting cut open at one point um, for Jamie Vardy to score, but it was called back for offside. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh on a on a team that's just lost the city, but that's two wins and two losses now for Leicester. You know, came off of a, a pretty poor performance against West Ham, just got over the line against Norwich, and now have followed it up with a with a defeat to City. I mean, we they've been the nearly men for the past couple of seasons under or under uh, Brendan Rodgers. Um, is there any sort of concern there? I mean. We haven't really seen too much of the new signings. Um, I mean, aside from Vestergaard, none of them started uh, at the weekend. Um, Samaria so and Dekka are obviously going to take a little bit of time to adjust, but neither of them even came off the bench. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of investment into this Leicester squad. Um, you know, they are a very decent team, but are they still kind of look like they're going to struggle to break that glass ceiling to, to, to take it one step further with the start of the season? I think the main problem for them is that uh, the last two years and they've come so close, they've been dealing with bigger sides who were in some sort of state of flux or, or chaos or underperformance. Whereas this year, as we've said a couple of times already, there looks like just four sides vying for the league, never mind, um, never mind pushing for the Champions League. Um, so I think what they're going to come up against this year is that to to greater or lesser degrees, there's four sides there who look capable of at least being part of a title conversation, however long each one lasts. It probably is Chelsea City uh, in some sort of first two and Liverpool United in, in some sort of second three and four. But for Leicester, and like they have definitely improved the squad, um, it just feels like, I, I don't know, have they missed their chance in that there was two seasons there where there was enough flux around the league that they could have gotten in under the wire and gotten into that top four and broken that glass ceiling. And now it feels like people have their house back in order a little bit. It also feels like there's kind of a closing gap from people like West Brom, or sorry, West Brom, geez, West Ham, uh, from underneath that maybe there's actually more pressure coming from underneath uh, than there has been. And maybe they're just going to not be mired in that kind of fifth, sixth place. But it, I don't know, it, it looks like their face doesn't fit as much in a top four as maybe it did in the last two seasons. Um, and it would be a shame because obviously I don't think any side has spent longer in the top four over the past two seasons than Leicester, which is a pretty mad stat. But they never finished there, and they never finished the job in either case. And um, th- there's there's less room for maneuver now because they're in a position where they've got a squad that could be, should be top four. And where do you go if you're stuck in this case now where there's four teams that are better than you, and maybe you're the fifth or sixth best team, but just kind of no further way to go. Where do the players get frustrated? How much time is Rogers given? It's quite a tricky situation for them now, I think. Yeah, there's almost that Arsenal FA Cup win hangover happening here with Leicester. Um, I thought Daka and Samari and even Vestergaard, once Fafana broke his leg, was were excellent additions. But if none of them are starting, I mean, indeed, he really flatters to deceive as far as I'm concerned. He was really found out in that West Ham match in particular, but is still starting and... You know, Vardy's 34 now. I know he has two goals in four games, but surely he'd like more pace around him, particularly with Daka. Um, and and he, he doesn't have that at the moment. So it, it just feels like they're they're kind of really trudging along. I mean, if, you know, the Wolves match, 
and the Norwich games, they were very laboured performances and quite lucky to get the wins there. So you talk about two wins out of four, it could have easily been mm. two draws out of four. And then all of a sudden you're in the bottom five at the start of the season and Europa League is suddenly your goal, which isn't where Leicester want to be at all. But um, they really did make a mess of the last two seasons. I mean, Champions League was nailed on for them and, and, they, and they messed it up both times. And and it feels like that's almost taken its toll on Rodgers and the squad and, and the FA Cup win almost... Um, you know, uh, was an excuse to ignore that. But ultimately, if you keep collapsing at the end of the seasons, it, it does become a pattern. And Leicester usually starts so strong. So the fact that they haven't this season um, would be a big concern. And the fact that they haven't integrated the new signings as well, you, you'd have to worry for them. I mean, one shot on target against City. I mean, these are the type of games that Leicester have really made their forte in the past five to six seasons where they can hit teams who you know, dominate possession away from home on the counter-attack, score two or three goals, get the win or get the draw, or have a good performance at the end of it. They're kind of losing that now as well. So you'd have to be a bit worried for them. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure where they go from here. I mean, the 4-2-3-1 has worked well for Rodgers overall, but um, it, it was a 4-4-2 that, you know, ended up winning them the league when Okazaki did so much work behind Vardy and the midfield four were just so solid behind him. Um, and I do think Daka could be a really good foil for him. Um, they've not really found a role for Iose Perez either. Obviously, Barnes has been excellent for them since returning on loan, so that makes sense. But um, I do think he has some big decisions to make in the weeks ahead if he really wants to get get some results. Um, he didn't sub either Ndidi or Tielemans at the weekend either, which is quite interesting considering... Uh, what he had on the bench so uh, it feels like he he's loyal to the players who have delivered for him overall but you know we said about uh, Tuchel earlier on I mean you can't be you know too romantic about things and and sometimes you have tough decisions to make and I think Rogers will be tested in the next few weeks any other business uh, in the Premier League, lads? Uh, just go through the last couple of games. Wolves finally got their first goals and win of the season under Bruno Lag. Um, I'm not sure if you saw him, but it was a known goal. And then new signing Huang Hee Chan bundling it over the line uh, to win 2-0 win over Watford. Um, Brighton laughing in the in the face of the XG Boffins there and late win uh, against Brentford. Leander Trussard with a, a pretty nice goal there. Uh, up to fifth now in the league. So, um I think there's probably a couple of teams probably uh, a little bit disappointed that they didn't make a, a better push for Graham Potter in the summer. Arsenal 1-0 win over Norwich, their first win of the season as well. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang with the goal. Um, our own Andrew Omobamadeli with a, a pretty impressive debut by all accounts. Uh, Premier League debut, I should say, for Norwich. Um, so hopefully he can uh, bid down his uh, position there for the season after a, an incredible couple of weeks for him. And finally, um, West Ham a little bit back to the mean maybe with their uh, entertaining football over the past couple of weeks and nil all draw against Southampton um, I think the only interesting thing there with uh, uh, Mikel Antonio getting sent off um, deep into injury time which uh, gave me a lovely minus one point for uh, fantasy purposes anything to out there lads? <laughs> um, just Norwich being completely useless just like they were two years ago I mean it's like they've just said yeah We'll go down just like we did a couple of years ago, but we'll probably go back <laughs> up again. You know, there's there's a sad sense of inevitability about everything that they're doing, which which is a big shame, obviously, from an Irish perspective. Uh, with Ida and Robert Medele, 
who, you know, it was great to see him start. And, and you know, from a United perspective, Brandon Williams actually had an excellent game. But again, it's just Norwich all over, really. But, um, you know, and from a selfish perspective, with United travelling there next week, Antonio not featuring for West Ham is delightful, really, because <laughs> I think he's a rope ball. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's been as exciting as it was at the start of the season, but um, that was probably to be expected once teams kind of found their rhythm a bit and things tightened up. But overall, I think it's it's a very exciting season ahead with the with the kind of top three, top four all in the same amount of points after four games. So there's not this pattern emerging where one team is just going to shoot out ahead and it's kind of season over. So hopefully that continues till at least Christmas. Leds, on the European front end, attention's turn quickly back to the Champions League this week um, back um, pretty quickly it feels like it's turned around uh, from last season when uh, City and Chelsea met in the final um, and a couple of big games obviously this week uh, with uh, Barcelona and Bayern tomorrow night uh, Tuesday night I should say Man um, United kicking things off early enough there against young boys um, Liverpool and AC Milan are out on Wednesday as well um, we've Inter Milan and Real Madrid, Atletico Porto, some big clashes over the past two games. Um, in terms of the favourites, obviously PSG, um, Mbappe, Messi, Neymar, that whole factor. I mean, you'd imagine their attentions are a hundred percent on Champions League uh, success this year, rather than concerning themselves with the likes of Reims and Angers and Marseille in the, in the French league. Yeah. Um, City and Chelsea obviously considering they were last year's finalists Bayern Munich Liverpool make up the top five there uh, in terms of the favourites um, do you see it you know going to one of those five again I mean at this point it's hard to look past PSG but again I mean with so many superstars it could very easily all unravel pretty quickly as we've seen with PSG over the past couple of years particularly uh, in that run up to the to the final against Bayern Munich uh, two seasons ago but I mean Pep, you'd imagine, would be keen to to go on better this year. Um, Tuchel and, and Chelsea look pretty imperious, although you know they might think they have a better hand at, at Premier League success this season. And Bayern and Liverpool are obviously um, seasoned Champions League performers at this point. They'll uh, they'll both be in amongst it, you'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, like first and foremost, it would be absolutely brilliantly hilarious if PSG don't manage to win this because, like they really fucking should. I mean, like, they've got the best player of all time to add on top of an already ridiculous squad. They've got um, the player of the tournament um, from Euro 2020 vying in goal with a keeper who's playing so well that the player of the tournament couldn't get in initially. Uh, they've added Sergio Ramos, who has, what, four or five Champions Leagues? They've added a bit of steel in midfield. It would be hilarious if they don't win this thing. Like, at this remove, not knowing how draws go, it looks almost inconceivable that they wouldn't, uh, that they will find a way. Uh, Mbappe's last season with Paris, quite likely. Messi's chance at the Champions League. Um, Potts will have a little while longer to work with them. Somebody like Gini Wijnaldum might help that kind of loss, that kind of head loss that they had in the semi-final last year. Might st- might help stop it from occurring. The only problem is the same problem that people said when they saw the, these kind of mocked-up teams from PSG. If they actually face somebody really proper in a semi-final or a final, is that team actually balanced enough to, to get through on kind of a razor's edge? They've got the attacking talent to score as many goals nearly as is needed, but do they have the balance to kind of, when to, when they are being met, when their fire is being met with fire from somebody else, do they have the balance is probably the biggest doubt. But I do find it hard to, to kind of look beyond them. Like you said, with Chelsea, 
uh, kind of fancying them to follow a Liverpool path a bit more, win the Champions League one year, go ball-headed after the league the next. I don't know if I'm missing some, something with City, but even though they added Grealish, I just don't feel like they've moved on a great degree from where they were. It feels like that squad is kind of in between two stools. It feels like there's they're waiting on a bit of a refresh, but it feels like it, it, it hasn't happened this year. Obviously, they were, they were apparently in for Harry Kane, didn't really push that hard for him, and they were also apparently in for Cristiano Ronaldo. So they feel like they're light up top. They, they themselves feel like they are light up top with the loss of Aguero. So I don't know if... I think this is the city vintage to break that duck. Uh, and then you kind of get into Liverpool, Bayern, United, who, whoever else you want to throw in there. And it's kind of look at a draw. And if they get drawn against somebody really good or well-balanced in the last eight, they could be gone as quick as they could get through to a final. So I think when you look at the favor, I think PSG's favoritism is justified. And unfortunately, given that it's the last Champions League that's going to be complete before the, the Qatar World Cup, I think PSG could be going into that Qatar World Cup as Qatar's European champions. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is PSG haven't really turned it on this season yet, as you would expect. Um, they've kind of been stumbling over the line in games in, in the French League. Obviously, Messi hasn't started a game yet. And the, the Ramos injury, the longer it drags on, the more you'd have to be concerned at his age. But... Um, they still have a lot of work to do to find the right balance in terms of integrating that front three and then picking the right midfield behind them. I mean, Herrera seems to be a bigger feature for Tuchel at the moment than he was last season. Or not, Sorry, not for Tuchel, obviously. Um, but uh, for Poch, um, which is which is interesting considering what they've added there. Um, once Nuno Mendes settles as well, um, and Hakimi has been excellent so far at the start of the season. Um, you imagine they might go for that kind of uh, wing-back approach um, to support the front three, in which case they would just have two sitting in midfield and one would have to be Verratti and the other you think would be Wijnaldum. But again, until everybody's fit, um, we need to see how they'll go. So it's just a case of whether you know they can figure that out by the time they get to the knockout stages in, in February. Um, but you'd still think they'd have to be favourites at that point. Um but I think when you look at the organisation that a team like Chelsea can bring, particularly with that back five, if they were able to shut down the front three and the wing backs and set up like for like, uh, I do think PSG would struggle. So I, I don't think it's a given that that they're they're nailed on, especially with that kind of history that they have of struggling to get over the line in the mm-hmm. Champions League. So I'd be much more concerned about a, a tactically astute coach like Tuchel who can set up, can win a Champions League, um, coming up against PSG, who are still finding their way, so um, I I don't think they're nailed on. I think Liverpool would also be be a good matchup for them as well in terms of knowing what they're about, knowing what they have to do. I think PSG this season will be mixing and matching that starting eleven, you know, for the next five or six months, with the aim of obviously having it nailed down by the time they reach the last sixteen, the last eight of the Champions League. And it'll just be a case of seeing how they go by then. Lads, in terms of dark horses, then I mean we've uh, we've been we've had a couple of nice ones over the years um, in terms of picking out a few. I mean we had IX that uh, year they, they they went fair um, with a pretty decent team that eventually got picked apart. Um, Phil, you were pretty high on Atlanta the year they they, they went fair. Anyone sticking out for you this year? 
I don't think that this side are going to win the competition, right? So I want to preface this, but um, I have staked some of my own hard-earned money on the fact that they will get out of their group, and that's Redbrook Salzburg. Um, so there's really interesting groups this year, right? There are some really big heavyweight clashes in a couple of groups, but that then necessarily means there are some groups that are perhaps better balanced then might otherwise be the case. And by better balanced, maybe I mean lower quality from top to bottom, but genuinely really good contests. And uh, Salzburg's group is one of those. Uh, they're in with Sevilla, with Wolfsburg, and with uh, Lille. Lille. Um, and there's nobody there that stands out in terms of that's a side who's going to reach a semi-final. Salzburg, last time they are in the Champions League, it's kind of a serious entity. They're nearly a completely different side. They had Jesse Marsh on the line. They had Haaland up front. They had Minamino. They, they had Wang Hee-chan, who's now at uh, Wolves, we mentioned earlier. Um, they are obviously part of this Red Bull group that feeds into to Leipzig. They have an, a pretty incredible turnover of players, um, but they, they do have excellent scouting networks. And there's a reason that, that clubs like Liverpool have such an appreciation for that Red Bull uh, model and um, they've got 33 year old on the line now as a manager which i i just love the approach of taking these kind of really young coaches i mean the man's barely older than i am and he's managing the champions league and they've uh kareem adiyemi up front who's creating a lot of balls at the minute um a ger- young german international um of nigerian descent who's creating a lot of balls at the minute i don't think they're in the strongest group i think they're going to be fun and i think they could get out of that group probably behind Sevilla, but it's so well balanced that I think there'll be a bit of fun. They could get out of the group and probably get knocked out by a good side in the last 16, but maybe not if they get a one of the weaker groups. Okay. I'm going to torpedo that prediction completely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the reason is because I think at 66 to one, Sevilla are the pick of the uh, dark horses. Um, the reason for that is Salzburg, I think, are too inexperienced to deal with anything that the Champions League throws at them. And Wolfsburg have a 100% record uh, at the top of Bundesliga with 12 points from four games. So I think um, Lille, with their atrocious start to the French season, their minds won't be on Europe at all at this stage. Uh, I think they've completely lost the plot for whatever reason. Um, so I think that group is completely between Wolfsburg and Sevilla uh, and I think both teams have far too much experience Sevilla have added huge experience in the, in the midfield with Goodledge good and uh, Thomas Delaney they've uh, a bit of a wild card up front now with Rafa Mer El, El Nesri has, has settled really well in, in the past kind of 18 months since joining um, and a lot of experience at the back now that now the Kunde has stayed um, and adding Akuna from Lisbon last season really really helped them as well so um, I think, you know, with uh, Lobotegi has done a fantastic job there. Uh, and I think they'll qualify from the group. And then obviously at 66 to 1, you can uh, trade out happily or let your 5 or 10 or run. But um, I, I just think Salzburg have, have far too much inexperience. And, you know, we know the, the production line, as, as Phil said, the young German international and Adamu as well up front has, has started the season really well as the uh, Pats and Daka replacement. But when it comes to the Champions League, that's a, a completely different level altogether. And they've always struggled really um, to adapt to that. Um, 
So that's that's where my kind of punt is now at the moment, um, especially after winning the Europa League a couple of seasons ago. It showed that they can mix it with, mm. you know, the better European teams as well. So, um, and also have have a gawk at Wolfsburg as well. At, I think they're 150 to one at the moment. So, uh, if you have <laughs> a fiver on both, I think <laughs> I, I think you get a bit of value. Um, even if they qualify, you'd be able to trade out. So, uh, they're my wild cards for sure. I was looking at a couple of the groups. I mean, similar enough to what you did there um, in Group G. I was looking at Group C where Ajax, Besiktas and Sporting could all be in amongst it uh, alongside Dortmund. Um, even, you know, would it be a huge surprise to see Besiktas get through? Maybe not. Um, but I'm going to nail my colours to a mess. And, and I'm fully expecting Enda to absolutely rip it to shreds, especially considering <laughs> his... Um, his better knowledge of uh, of the Portuguese league, but I'm going to call Benfica to get through ahead of Barcelona in Group E. Um, I think they're going to spring a shock. Just looking at their the, the makeup of their squad, I think it has the feel of a team that is like a you know an unlikely qualifier. Get through, maybe get into a last eight, and then get knocked out. Um, I just look at Yaremchuk and Seferovic. They, I think they've goals. They've little bit of experience with the likes of Vertonghen and Otamendi, um, you know, Portuguese internationals mixed in there as well. I just think that the overall makeup of the squad could be something um, that springs a little bit of surprise, especially uh, considering Barcelona, Barcelona's um, tumultuous um, summer um, going into this one. Could take the right off the ball slightly in Europe, especially with the, with the overhaul of the squad. Um, and they've had a pretty good start of the season as well. I think they have five wins from five. So um, my dark horse, not like Phil, not to win it, but I think just to, to spring a, a little surprise in the group stage um, and, and knock out um, one of the, the big names, I, uh, I'm going to go with Benfica. Yeah, I mean, they had a nightmare of a season last season and they didn't even qualify. They got knocked out. And ironically, one of the players they sold scored the goal that knocked them out. Um They've kind of moved to this 3-4-3 with Grimaldo and Gonçalves as the wing-backs, which obviously helps Everton and Nunes up front. Um, Weigel has a far more experienced partner beside him in João Mario. So, and Yarmachuk has been, you know, could be one of the sign- signings of the season when, when they're finished. So, yeah, it's, it's a shout for sure. And obviously with the Barcelona chaos and, you know... <sighs> Even the stuff Koeman was coming out with today was just ludicrous, saying, well, I have a better relationship with Laporta, but no, I don't. Like, it was just <laughs> insane stuff. And, you know, you know, I'm better for the future of Barcelona. I mean, he's just, you yeah. know, these these deluded Dutch coaches, I, I don't know where they fucking come from, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, you know, it must be the, the air in Amsterdam or something. But, um, yeah, uh, worth a shout for sure. They've got the experience. Yeah. And they have started the season much better. And obviously, George Jesus knows what he's about. So, yeah, no, it's it's a good shout. I don't know what the odds are in Benfica, but um, they're it certainly prob- in a better place than they were 12 months ago, yeah. It probably hinges on Kiev getting a, a result in Kiev against Barcelona or something like that. But uh, I just I, I would, just looking at the makeup of the team and the group, considering how, uh, how bad of a shape Barcelona have been in, I think it's... Uh, mm. You never know. You never know. But um, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll remind ourselves of uh, of our cause as the season yeah. goes on, for good or worse. Um, and uh, Phil, thanks a million for coming on tonight. Thanks, lads. Thank you.
respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>